Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com When you can't or won't take up arms to fight a bully, but you don't want him to win, what's left is sanctions. The UK is proud to lead by example. We've already put in place the largest package of sanctions in our history. From banking to oligarchs to energy, sanctions are starting to bite in Moscow. The Russian ruble has plunged to a record low. Russia's central bank doubled its key interest rates to an unprecedented 20%. And in London... I think it's a bit unfair on the club. They've known the situation for 19 years, but now because there's a war, they're punishing Chelsea and punishing Abramovich. But what is it realistic to expect sanctions to achieve? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, sanctioning Putin, deadly weapon or paper tiger? I'm Oliver Wright, policy editor at The Times. What does the policy editor do again? What we try and do is drill down below some of the politics to work out the details of what's actually going on in government and what it means, you know, both to our readers and more broadly in terms of situations like sanctions. And, of course, one of the things that we're going to come on to, and the people have heard a lot about, are sanctioned oligarchs. Could you take us through a day in the life of an oligarch who's been sanctioned by Britain, assuming that they're still domiciled here? Most of them who may have been domiciled here in the past have now left the country. But for any remaining, there's very little they can actually do. The extent of the sanctions regime on someone who has had sanctions imposed upon them is such that effectively no one can even buy them a cup of coffee because that is giving them a financial service of one form or the other. I was talking to a sanctions expert last week who said, really, the only thing that you can give someone who's been sanctioned is a virus. And I think that is where we're at. 
When Russia shocked the world by invading Ukraine, it was agreed in the West that something must be done. Our government, like many others, wanted to hurt Vladimir Putin and those considered to be his cronies, several of whom have investments in the UK. And so it was that the fabulously successful and fabulously well-funded Chelsea Football Club found itself in trouble. So if you look at someone like Roman Abronovich, who was sanctioned last week by the UK government, all his assets are frozen, and that includes a company like Chelsea. I think it's unfair on Chelsea Football Club, yeah. Yeah, of course I do. And where's this proof of, of what connections he had with Putin? What has he done? And if whatever he has done, tell us. It's not just an Abramovich thing, it's, it's a Chelsea thing. You know, we are consistently targeted and left behind in the dust and we have to do things the hard way. Now, in the case of Chelsea, what the government had to do was to create a special regime to allow the football club to carry on. But the the strictures that they put into place on the football club were such that it was a treasury official who had to decide exactly how much money the club would be allowed to spend getting to away matches. And they put a figure of £20,000 on that. And clearly the person who was doing that particular bit of the sanctions regime wasn't a football fan and wasn't really aware of the fact that Chelsea didn't just have to travel to Wigan or to Burnley or to Arsenal, that actually they travelled to Europe as well and the number of people that they needed to take. So in order for Chelsea to be able to carry on to operate, it was the government that set the rules of the game. And they said that people couldn't buy tickets unless they'd got a season ticket already. While they could get some TV rights, they couldn't get sponsorship, they couldn't sell club shirts, mascots, etc., So it's an incredibly restrictive regime when you actually do impose it. I have to say, um, this seems fantastically arbitrary, some of this. In other words, you can't (laughs) say, here's here's a sanction. We're going to sanction this chap who we've let do what he likes here pretty much for two decades. And, oh dear, he's got a football club. What does a football club mean? Well, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll do that. Almost as if they're making it up as they go along. (laughs) There's some truth to it. Having said that, The sanctions regime on individuals is incredibly difficult and arduous. Equally, I'm not convinced in the wider picture that it exerts an awful lot of pressure on Putin. I shouldn't think Putin cares too much. This will be the toughest sanction regime against Russia we have ever had. But it's symbolic. It's the government, Liz Truss in particular, showing they are doing something. We will make sure that those who share responsibility for the Kremlin's aggressive and destabilising action will share in bearing a heavy cost. You know, in the case of someone like Abronovich, it was really domestic public opinion that made them take the move rather than thinking that sanctioning Abronovich was suddenly going to make Putin have a change of heart. What does frozen mean? An awful yeah. lot of people have asked me, they say, so you work in journalism, what does it mean when your stuff is frozen? Do you get it back? You do get it back. And that is a key point that your assets are frozen, which means you can actually carry on living in your house in the UK if if you want to, but you can't move that money, you can't spend that money, you can't give anyone any money for the time at which you're sanctioned. But clearly, when those sanctions finish, all your assets return to you. And that gets you back into this question that's been raised on several occasions by Michael Gove about seizing the assets of some of these oligarchs. The Mail on Sunday is reporting that Secretary of state for levelling up, Michael Gove wants the seized mansions of Russian oligarchs to be used to house Ukrainian refugees. As opposed to freezing those assets, you seize them. I think that's 
hugely problematic in terms of an individual's human rights because they are being sanctioned to put pressure on the regime. Sanctions are not a punishment in themselves. They are in a way of exerting pressure. And so if you suddenly say, well, actually, we're not going to sanction them any longer, we're simply going to take their assets, I think you're in a whole different ballgame. Actually, that is a really critical difference, isn't it, between punish them, which is what a lot of people think we're doing to Mm. these oligarchs because they've been bad people who are close to Putin. And that's why the government, for example, has made the argument that Abramovich is close to Putin as a way of justifying what they've done Mm. and sanctioning them because they're supposed to have some kind of effect upon Russian policy making, which is a completely different motivation. Absolutely. And I think that has been conflated by British politicians and some of the rhetoric you see around the sort of individual sanctions regime is about punishing those people close to Putin. And arguably sanctioning someone is punishing them, at least temporarily. But you are not, unless you change the law, you are certainly not taking away these people's assets. You are merely stopping them from using them. And what you've also seen is individuals in the UK who have substantial business interests, effectively removing their stakes so that they no longer control those businesses. So, for example, someone who had a 51% share in a business, they control that business, that would then shut down that business. So what they've done is they've reduced their stake to below 50%, so they no longer control that business. So their stake in that business is frozen, but the business itself can carry on operating because they're not in control of that business. Mikhail Fridman built his fortune in Vladimir Putin's Russia. A deal between his oil company and BP was endorsed by the Russian president and Tony Blair. You see that in the case of someone like Friedman, whose uh, letter one investment company controls Holland and Barrett, the health food chain. He reduced his stake in the investment company that owned Holland and Barrett to allow Holland and Barrett to continue trading, because if he'd been controlling that business, they themselves would be under the sanctions regime. Sorry, are you telling me that Holland and Barrett was controlled by a Russian oligarch? Absolutely. Right. Um, (laughs) Give me a quick tour of the sanctions against other oligarchs and how our sanctions are comparing against those of other countries. So we have been pretty slow off the mark, and that's because of the sanctions legislation in place when the conflict started and concerns that if you placed sanctions on an individual and they challenged them in court, that you wouldn't have the legal basis to do it. One thing that's changed was that the Economic Crime Bill got royal assent, which makes it far easier for the government to impose sanctions on individuals. Today, Madam Deputy Speaker, I can announce we will go further than ever before by hitting over 360 more people complicit with Putin's regime many of whom had already been sanctioned by the EU. This is really the UK government playing catch-up with what the EU was able to do already. There could be some people further down the track who do get sanctioned. But I think in terms of individual economic sanctions, we've pretty nearly reached the limit of the number of people who are going to be sanctioned. Now, all the talk about oligarchs and all the talk about what Britain does is all very interesting. But the truth, as both of us know, is it's not actually the important part of this. What actually is the aim of those of the countries that are sanctioning Russia economically? What are they trying to do? And what's the theory of how it's supposed to work? It's a long-term game. 
No one who is involved in the sanctions world would say or try and argue that you impose these sanctions and you immediately see a change of heart by Vladimir Putin. The whole point of the sanctions regime is, in the longer term, to effectively hobble, or some would say cripple, the wider Russian economy, which they hope will bring Putin to the negotiating table. And it gives the West negotiating capital, as it were, to say, well, if you withdraw your troops from Ukraine or you do this, we will relax this sanction or that sanction. It's to give them bargaining capital, as it were. Finally, after more than a decade of on-off negotiations, agreement has now been reached between the major world powers and Iran on curbing its nuclear programme. I mean, the best way perhaps of looking at it is looking at the Iranian sanctions, which have been in place for a number of years. They were lifted when the nuclear deal was struck back in 2015. We have stopped the spread of nuclear weapons in this region. Because of this deal, the international community will be able to verify that the Islamic Republic of Iran will not develop a nuclear weapon. They were then reimposed again under the Trump administration and talks are going on at the moment which have been reasonably successful in trying to get the nuclear deal back on the table. Now, I think there is a general acknowledgement that the pretty draconian sanctions led by America that were imposed on Iran did have an effect on the leadership in Iran to change their policy around enriching uranium. And it gave the West negotiating capital, which they didn't have. You know, it's a very similar picture in Russia, although with the big difference that there isn't a ban on Russian oil and gas exports, but the rest of the type of sanctions, the removing them from the international banking system, making it very hard for them to work in any kind of foreign currency, those are all broadly similar. And I think, you know, most sanctions experts would say that it took a while with Iran, but sanctions did have an effect in changing the attitude of the Iranian regime and bringing them to the negotiating table. Let's dig into the mechanism of that a little bit. There are lots of arguments, aren't there, about sanctions. You've cited the example of Iran. Other people cite the example of things like the American blockade on Cuba, which had no demonstrable effect in changing the regime, which is what the Americans wanted, Mm. not least because it allowed the government to create a degree of solidarity with its people by saying it's those Americans, it's the Yankees, uh, and so on. Is there a worry that Putin does the same thing in Russia that says, this is a good reason actually for you to get more behind the government because it's all the fault of NATO and these horrible Westerners that you're suffering? Absolutely. One of the problems in what we've seen in the coverage of the conflict in Ukraine is we really haven't heard the voices of midtown Russia, as it were. Where do they stand on sanctions? Does that actually make them more likely to support Putin now? And where does that go in six months or 12 months? But one distinction I would draw if you're looking at Cuba and the blockade of Cuba, or indeed Iran, is that neither Cuba or Iran at that point were as integrated with the kind of Western economic system as Russia is. And Mm. the levels of integration with Russia, despite the political differences, were pretty significant. British companies selling Rolls-Royce cars in Moscow, you know, European banks in Russia. Therefore, the dislocation of imposing those sanctions on the Russian economy is going to be much greater than a country which wasn't particularly connected economically to the West. So what actually are the biggest sanctions against Russians so far? 
those which will have the biggest economic impact or that are the most unprecedented? I think the most significant specific sanction is on the Russian central bank and effectively banning it from access to both the dollar and the euro. Most people would have heard this sort of Putin's war chest, the amount of money in foreign reserves that he built up in the months and years leading up to the invasion of Ukraine, around roughly around $600 billion of foreign reserves. Now, most of that money is not actually in gold bars underneath the Russian central bank. They're basically digits on a computer screen, um, a lot of them outside of Russia's control. Around half Russia's reserves are in dollars or euros. And effectively, that funding has now been completely frozen. And you, know, you saw the impact of that particular sanction in what happened to the ruble. Anxiously watching the currency exchange as the ruble's value keeps plummeting. And Russian interest rates. In an attempt to prop up the ruble, Russia's central bank doubled its key interest rate to an unprecedented 20%. Which is going to have an effect on the real Russian economy. So it's less obvious than sanctioning a Russian oligarch, but in terms of actually having an effect on the Russian economy, the move on the Russian central bank was by far the most significant sanction we've seen so far. Now, what about the ban on exports of high-tech goods, goods that could have a military purpose or just stuff which you need to keep modern things going? That also will have an effect both on the broader Russian economy and, frankly, on individuals, you know, just small things like smartphones. Inside this box, the very last shipment of iPhones to arrive at this electronics store. Apple is pulling its products out of Russia. You won't be able to get an iPhone anymore because the chip in the iPhone is covered by sanctions. So when those stocks run out, you won't be able to get another one. I mean, another point is Russian airlines. Now, obviously, there's a ban also a sanction on Russian airlines flying into European airspace and a number of other countries as well. But a lot of them have Western Airbus planes, Boeing planes. They need parts, and those parts are covered by the sanctions. So what do you do? Do you fly the planes without the parts, or do you end up grounding those planes? It will have an effect on individuals' lives, but it will also have a broader effect on the Russian economy as people can't get the kinds of equipments they need to keep factories running. Coming up, could these unprecedented sanctions have unexpected consequences? But first... Hi, I'm Paul Morgan-Bentley, Head of Investigations at The Times. My job involves in-depth reporting and undercover work. In recent months, I've gone undercover to expose problems at Hermes, the parcel delivery firm in the run-up to Christmas, and backlogs at the DVLA, affecting millions of drivers. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oliver, one of the things that's been said is that quite a few of the early sanctions have a big effect on, if you like, the kind of Russian middle class. And then there's become another narrative, which is that this will also pretty rapidly feed through to increase in things like food prices and so on, which actually hit the poorer Russians disproportionately. Mm, Absolutely, because for a very simple reason, any imports that you're required to make, if you're paying for them in foreign currency, you're going to be paying more because the ruble is worth much less than it was at the start of the invasion. And Russia does have a pretty large agricultural base, which will protect it up to a point, but it does rely on foreign imports and not just from the West. Now, there's been a lot of talk about does China step in and, you know, they can get quite a lot of this stuff from China, but the Chinese are going to want paying for it. If the ruble is worth less, it's going to cost more. These things do feed food. Interest rates, as we know in this country, if you've got high interest rates, that pushes food to the cost of living. And if we think in this country we've got a cost of living crisis, frankly, that's nothing compared to what is going to be experienced by people in Russia over the next year or so if sanctions carry on. Do we have any notion of the timescale within which some of these things have effect? Obviously, if you liked your McDonald's and you were in a city where there was a McDonald's, it's had an effect immediately, that's closed. But, you know, you can go to Putin Burger, I imagine, or something like that and get something else. It won't be as good, but maybe it'll act as a replacement. But there are other things you can't replace. The question to which, if we're honest, we don't know the answer is, can Russia step up and replace some of the things that they would otherwise need? Can they get those from elsewhere? To what extent, over time, can they become an island and recreate the stuff that they were importing before? I think it would be difficult, and I think it will be long-term. But there's precedent to this during the Soviet period The Russian economy was largely cut off from the West. There was some stuff. But the other question, and if I'm honest, I don't know the answer to this, is what countries like India do that have pretty large manufacturing bases, have close links to Russia, to what extent do they continue to trade? Do they continue to step up? When Ukraine was discussed at the UN, interestingly, India was one of those countries that abstained on that vote. And they have long-standing links to Russia. And they had long-standing links to Russia during the Soviet period. And there were a lot of Indian exports to Russia and vice versa. So does the dislocated trade with Western countries get replaced by a greater trading relationship with countries such as India? And I don't think we know the answer to that yet. 
International brands are vanishing from Moscow's shopping centers. This move today, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Starbucks suspending operations in Russia. Some 300 businesses are pausing operations in Russia, from fast food and fossil fuels to cars, computers and parkas. The decision of high-profile private companies to boycott Russia, is that more of a psychological effect than an economic effect, or is it both? I think overall it's more of a psychological effect. There is obviously some kind of form of economic effect, but the companies involved aren't huge. No Western companies had massive exposure to Russia. Roughly, the biggest Western companies had around sort of 8% exposure to Russia. And they've also... I I slightly hesitate before using the word disingenuous, but they've talked about winding down their operations in Russia, some of them. A lot of this is about PR. I quite like to return in six to 12 months and find out exactly what they may still be doing in Russia or whether they have pulled out altogether. And arguably, some of these companies make the not unreasonable point that they've got employees in Russia and they have some sort of obligation to those employees. And that in itself is not wrong. It's not wrong, but it's what rubs against the logic of sanctions, that's all. Yes, no, that is true. This is an impossible question, I think, probably for you to answer, but have a go at it, Oliver. (laughs) If you stick all this together, Mm. how much pressure does this add up to over weeks and months? It's not going to change the dial materially. I think in weeks and months, what changes the dial materially is how Russia's campaign is going in Ukraine, what kind of casualties they're facing in Ukraine, and whether there is an off-ramp, as the Americans like to call it, to be done. I don't think that sanctions are the game changer in that sort of period. I think where sanctions potentially are a game changer is in a year or two's time, depending on what the situation is in Ukraine at that point, of bringing everyone back to the negotiating table. Now, it's very interesting, I think, the way in which the debate has shifted. At at the beginning, as the invasion became a possibility, and then when the invasion first became a reality, there was a lot of question about whether or not the sanctions, even quite significant sanctions, would actually have an effect because the Russians had taken countermeasures in the period leading up to the invasion. And then I noted within the last few days a pretty significant change in expert thinking on whether or not they would have an impact, as you say, in the medium term. To give credit to Western governments, they have imposed sanctions which are far more significant than anyone thought would be possible in the lead up to the invasion. The dial has shifted particularly. I mean, the Brits were always quite up for sanctions. The Americans were always quite up for sanctions. The EU, particularly countries like Germany, like Italy, that have pretty significant trading relationships with Russia, had reservations about how far they should go. But there has been a shift in uh, public opinion in those countries. There has been a shift in the view of the sort of political classes in those countries. And that has allowed the West to act with far more unanimity and impose far more stringent sanctions than I think any of us thought would be likely before the invasion. The question is, does that consensus within the West carry on when it comes to a deal with Russia? How hard a bargain would the West want to push? And would the West remain united in that circumstances? Or would certain countries push for the easing of sanctions more than others? 
this is a long-term game, just because we've got unanimity and the horror of what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, does that last a year or two? I think those are questions which we simply don't know the answer to at this stage. Military conflicts these days don't necessarily go on for years and years and years and years. They do have a kind of a finite possibility. Do you see sanctions as having an impact within the course of time that military action is going on at this level of intensity? Yes, to some degree. I think the immediate symbolic results of sanctions you saw with McDonald's shuttering up its shop in Moscow and St. Petersburg and inflation going up, interest rates going up to 20%. Those are things which ordinary Russians will see in their everyday lives and they will be aware of what has caused that, even if they're being told about the sort of special operation, special military operation in Ukraine, they will be aware that a lot has changed. And that is important in itself to show the Russian public what the effect of what their leadership has done is. But obviously, those sanctions and the effect of those sanctions are going to increase on people's everyday lives in time. It won't happen overnight. Just the cost of living here is going to take a while to seep through to people and individuals, and it's in stages. So the same, I think, will probably be true in Russia as well. Vladimir Putin describes sanctions as an act of war. Was that purely rhetoric, or do you think there's a chance that if things go badly for Russia and the sanctions bite, Russia could respond to sanctions, uh, people putting sanctions, as if to say it is the equivalent of you having fired upon us and we now feel ourselves free to attack you? I don't know. It's asking to look into Putin's mind. Is he a rational player or isn't he? And I just don't have the answer to that. If you flip the question on its head, and one of the things that kind of interests me, and I don't know whether or not this will come to pass, was some of the demands that Putin was making before the invasion of Ukraine, such as Ukrainian neutrality, recognising the Crimea, not joining NATO. Having taken this very strong stance on sanctions and indeed supporting Ukraine militarily with some defensive weapons and having shown Putin and Russia that the invasion of Ukraine wasn't entirely straightforward and that there would be a price for that kind of aggression. Is the West prepared to compromise? Is the West prepared to look at a Ukraine that is neutral, that doesn't join NATO? Having made their point to Putin and almost sort of sort of line in the sand, is it in the interest of the West to step back and try and defuse this? And I don't know the answer to that, but it must be something that people are thinking about. For many years, we talked about the triumph of globalization, total interconnectedness, everybody trading with everybody else, finance zooming around the world, and so on. Now we have this really significant level of sanctions, and presumably countries worried about being sanctioned themselves will take countermeasures to insulate themselves from those sanctions. And we've already talked about who European countries will and won't buy gas from in the future, not based on price, but based on energy security. Are we seeing a remaking of the world economic order and our assumptions about it? I think we are. And I think it is not just sanctions and the situation in Russia and Ukraine that is doing that. I think you also have to look at COVID, the PPE crisis. Before COVID, we basically subcontracted the making of PPE equipment and a whole bunch of other stuff to China. And what COVID illustrated is that in times of stress, those international supply chains could dry up, 
you didn't have your own manufacturing base, you didn't have your own resilience. And you certainly saw what the government have done in response to that, which was to look across the piece at the sort of strategically important areas where the UK needs to have its own domestic supply, even if that costs more than it might have done from importing it from China. So you've got On the one hand, the West looking at previously perceived to be reliable international partners and say, well, how reliable are they necessarily? And equally, you've got countries such as China, which I imagine the Chinese leadership at the moment is looking at this quite carefully and wondering to what extent are we reliant on the West for this, that and the other? Where do we need to improve our own resilience over Taiwan or whatever it might be? How do we insulate ourselves from Western economic sanctions? I think saying that it's a remaking of the world economic order is not an understatement. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Times policy editor Oliver Wright. You can read more of Oliver's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer was Edward Drummond, the executive producer today was James Shield, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. And if you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes@thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times. And it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.